Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Carl Truman, he was a professor of church history at Westminster Theological Seminary. He's written some good books on the culture recently, so you might know, know him from that. But I remember listening to the audio of one of his classes. He said that as a professor of church history, people would sometimes ask him, if you could go back and live at any period of time in history, when would you choose to live? <laughs> and if you know Carl Truman, he's funny. But he said, literally, I would choose right now. Because penicillin was not discovered until 1928, and it wasn't widely available until some time after. So if you went back and lived at any point in history before the 1930s, you could die from a scratch. But we do like to romanticize the past. Sometimes we look back on history. Some people get into a fad. They look back to the Victorian times, and sometimes in the interest of modesty, some women like to dress like that. That's fine. It's fine. Sometimes it's more just a historical interest, and we do tend to romanticize the past, and really, that can lead us to neglect the only thing we have, because we don't have the past. We have the present right now, and for whatever reason, maybe it's because you live with the present, just like you live with your spouse. You begin to take it for granted, the benefits that you have today, because you get used to them, and it's easier to see all the problems so when you read history, maybe the American Revolution, whatever, we romanticize it. You don't see the problems. You see the glories of it. You wish you were back then. But it wasn't so glamorous back then. Another interesting point of history, like the Reformation. Oh, wouldn't it be amazing to see Luther nail the 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg? You know what you would notice most if you were there? That it smelled terrible. <laughs> no one had deodorant. No one bathed. So we romanticize the past. I mention this because this is something that we're prone to do when it comes to the subject that we're considering today, which is the day of Pentecost. Pentecost took place, the first Christian Pentecost, 2,000 years ago. It's recorded in Acts chapter 2. We live after Pentecost. We live in this age, but we take it for granted because Pentecost has happened and has brought in what we call the last days when we live today, we live now in the age of the Spirit, where the Spirit is present and active among us in a way that He wasn't, not in the same way, before Pentecost happened 2,000 years ago. But sometimes it's easy for us to think, well, our lives aren't that exciting. We're used to them. So we look back into the Old Testament, to the great history, redemptive history, long before the time of Jesus, and we think if only we could have been there. Some of you maybe went to Cincinnati to see the recreation of the great ark. You think, wouldn't it be amazing to be on Noah's ark at the time of the flood, to look out on the vast ocean that the whole world was at that time? Or we might think, if we could just be Abraham, here you are trying to make big decisions in your life, and it's hard. Abraham had to do hard things, but he just had God literally telling him, go do that. Go to that land. Go up that mountain. Wouldn't you like to have that? So we read that account and think, my life's boring because God never told me to go there or do that like that. We wish we could stand with the Red Sea before us like walls on either side and put our sandaled feet on dry land that was just submerged deep under the waters that are now beside us. 
and look behind us and see a massive pillar of cloud that at nighttime turned into a pillar of fire. You think, I struggle with faith, but I wouldn't struggle with faith if I was there then. Or we would love to see David kill Goliath with a single stone. We'd love to see the temple in the time of Solomon filled with glory. Back when God was so active. And we can romanticize those periods of history. But you know, if we could take any of these men, from Noah to Abraham, David, Solomon, if we could take them, bring them here, do you know what they would say to you? They would say, oh, we wish that we had the blessing of living when you live, not when we lived. The letter to the Hebrew says, all these, referring to these men long ago, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, better than what they had for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Or again in 1 Corinthians, these things, talking about Old Testament history, happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Here's one more. Jesus spoke this to his original 12, but it has some application to us. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see. Think David, Abraham, Moses. They longed to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. We live in the best of days, what the Bible calls the last days. And when you think of the last days, maybe the first thing you think is doom, fire, misery, and judgment. But you're thinking of the last of the last days. And that is true. Those things will come. What you read in the book of Revelation, those things are coming. But we're not there yet. The last days is a long period of time that began at Pentecost, or thereabouts, and extends to right now when we live. And the advantages that we as God's people have in these last days are unparalleled in history. Moses didn't have them. Not what you have. Abraham didn't have it. You have it. And why is that? It's because you live in the age of the Spirit. What sets this age apart, there are several things, but what sets this age apart that we live in from those past ages we romanticize is primarily this, that the Spirit is among us and He is active in a way that He was not during those periods of time. This is the age of the Spirit, post-Pentecost. You might not be convinced yet of that. <laughs> That's okay. That's why we have this lesson. I told you last week that the lessons we've already talked about in this class were focused on the who of the Holy Spirit, His being, who He is, that He is God, and that He is one person of the triune Godhead. Now, beginning now, to the end of this class, this quarter, we will be talking about the works of the Holy Spirit, His roles, what He does. Considered who He is, we'll be considering what He does, and we're going to consider what He does under His six primary roles. What are the six main things he does in your life? But before we get to those, that'll be the rest of the classes. This is kind of an introduction to those. Because we want to consider more generally just the fact that he is doing those things in this age. 
in a way he wasn't before. And so we need to talk about Pentecost. You can't really talk about the Spirit for a long time without talking about that great momentous day of Pentecost. So that's what we're talking about today. We're really considering two things when it comes to Pentecost. First, we're going to be considering the day itself as it's recorded in Scripture, what happened on that day. But then we're going to look at what changed, what is different about what the Holy Spirit does among His people before Pentecost and now in this age of the Spirit after Pentecost. What are our privileges? What are our blessings? So those are the two things we're going to look at today. So we're going to begin by considering the day of Pentecost itself. And there are just maybe a few of you who will never forget where in the Bible we have recorded for us the story of Pentecost because you might be old enough to remember the 70s band. <laughs> Anyone know this band, the second chapter of Acts? So we're going to be in the second chapter of Acts. This is the chapter that contains for us Pentecost. So if you have a Bible, you might want to flip there. We'll be looking at that. Now, before we get into that text, I want to give you a little bit of background that's going to help you understand the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. I've got to give you really two pieces of background. Here's the first one. First, you need to know that when we Christians use the term Pentecost, that is not a term unique to Christianity. It's not a term that we made up to describe the day when the Holy Spirit came upon the church. Pentecost was the name of a Jewish religious festival commanded in the Old Testament. You have pa Passover, Pentecost. In fact, in the Old Testament, God's people were commanded to observe three yearly pilgrimage festivals. These were three, there were other festivals, but these were the three where all the males, ideally, there were exceptions, but all the males would go up to Jerusalem and celebrate this festival three times a year. The first one was the Passover, and that was the day on which Jesus died. He died on the Passover. Then 50 days later was the second pilgrimage. So I guess you just got home, and then a little while later, you're coming back to Jerusalem. The second one was Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Weeks, the Day of the First Fruits. It was a Jewish religious holiday. And then the third annual pilgrimage. Anybody know? Anybody have a guess what that third one is? Yeah, Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, which took place just 10 days after the great Day of Atonement. So if you know those three festivals, you've got the bulk of it. The second one's Pentecost, or it's also called the Feast of Weeks, or the Day of First Fruits. It has a few different names, Feast of Weeks. So those are the three annual pilgrimage Jewish festivals, and they were commanded in the Old Testament. Christians didn't invent them. So here, for example, it's Leviticus 23. It says, you shall count 50 days to the day, the day after the seventh Sabbath. So if you had seven Sabbaths, seven, seven times seven, 49, the next day is going to be 50. So that's how you calculate. It was on the sixth day of the third month for the Jewish people. But when that day comes, it says, quote, then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. There were other sacrifices, but that was the main point. The point of the Feast of Weeks, the seven weeks, was that that was right about the time that the grain was harvested to begin with. So you brought in the first fruits of your harvest. So you had the Passover to commemorate what happened in the Exodus. And then 50 days later is about the time, that third month, they would be bringing in the first fruits, the first part 
of the grain harvest, the wheat harvest. And so as you're doing that, there was a festival where you'd take some of that grain that you're harvesting and you'd present it to the Lord. And there would be a holy convocation, sort of like a Sabbath, a day of rest, a day of worship. That is what Pentecost was. Pentecost, the word, by the way, just comes from a Greek word meaning 50, because that's how many days after Passover it took place. All right, so that's the one piece of background information you need. Just keep in mind, this is a Jewish celebration focused on bringing in the first fruits of the harvest. So it's even called the day of the first fruits. You need to know that. The second thing you need to know in terms of background, what happened on Christian Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on his people, was also predicted in the Old Testament. The clearest passage of the Old Testament predicting that the Holy Spirit would come upon his people in a unique way in these last days is in Joel chapter 2. Here's what we read in Joel chapter 2. I'm beginning in verse 28 here. <clears throat> so this is long before the time of Jesus, long before. And it shall come to pass afterward, and the Hebrew word for afterward can be just taken as the latter days, later on, the last days we live in. Later on, this is going to happen. So this is what Joel says. That I will pour out, as God speaking, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. It's all flesh, everybody. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. And if you've ever read Joel, you know that Joel chapter 2, that promise right there comes right in the context of God promising Israel restoration and future salvation. It's everything that Israel as a nation was longing for. They were craving salvation from their enemies and restoration as a nation and the Messiah to come and rule over them. They're craving that because, of course, their history had been so much affliction and trouble. And right in the middle, as God is describing for them what's going to happen later when he saves them, he says, and in those last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh, everybody, sons, daughters, old men, young men, servants, everybody. So I just want to make clear to you as we study Pentecost, this wasn't some new thing. The holiday wasn't even made up by Christians at all. It already had been a holiday for hundreds and hundreds of years. The promise of the Holy Spirit that was fulfilled that day wasn't made up by Christians. You can read it there in Joel 2 and many other places in the Old Testament. So there was an expectation that the Spirit would come. All right. With that background, yes, Mike. Yeah. The Book of Ruth during Pentecost. That's a good question. You know, that's a really good question. I have no idea. I mean, I would imagine. Assuming they were still celebrating it because in Ruth they're... Yeah, yeah, they would have been. That's a good question. Somebody looked that up. If Ruth was happening during Pentecost, that would be interesting. Good question. All right, with this background information, you are ready to think about the day of Pentecost itself. So, Acts chapter 2. Here's verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, and don't think like, oh, Christian Pentecost. We're just talking about the festival, 
festival of Pentecost arrived, 50 days after Passover. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, it's 120 disciples, were all together in one place, the upper room. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, per Joel chapter 2, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So just pause right there. This Jewish festival, 50 days after the Passover. Now, it's an interesting thought that we're told in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, Jesus after his resurrection, three days after the Passover, after his resurrection, remained with his disciples for 40 days. And I don't know how precise Luke meant to be. Was it exactly 40 days, maybe, or approximately? I don't know. But if he was fairly precise, it means that Jesus had been appearing to the disciples over the course of some 43 days, if you add the resurrection in there, some 43 days, and this is day 50. So Jesus had probably ascended just a week before. So that'd be an unusual week to live, the limbo between Jesus ascending and the Holy Spirit is not sent yet. A lonely week, maybe, waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus had told them, you stay in Jerusalem. And he said, you will be baptized with the Spirit not many days from now. I mean, if it's a week, that's really not many days from now. But they get to the end of that week. They're in the upper room. They're expectant. They're waiting. Because even John the Baptist, they had heard John the Baptist baptize with water. But he told of someone who was coming who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, that's me. It's going to happen. Wait right here. So there's a real sense of expectation. And now the expectation doesn't lead them to make up. Sometimes this happens today. Some people want to manifest evidences of the Spirit, like speaking in tongues so much that you just say banana backwards or something, and then it looks like you're speaking in tongues. But that's not what we're talking about here. There was a sense of expectation. But what happens here at Pentecost, as you'll see, is not banana backwards. It's speaking legitimate languages that people could recognize. It's really a work of the Holy Spirit, indisputably. So the Feast of Weeks comes, Pentecost, 120 disciples, which at the time, that was the whole church. I mean, that was, there's a few maybe rogue folks here and there who are followers of Jesus, but is a church of 120, so we've got a church larger than the whole universal church in some sense at that point. 120, that's it. And that included Jesus' own brothers, his mother Mary was there, they're praying, they're together. Pentecost comes, I don't know if they could have put pieces together and thought, maybe this is going down on Pentecost, I don't know, but it did. Now there are two symbols that... God decided to use when the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh on that day. They're symbols. You can't see the Holy Spirit. So if they were going to perceive his work in any way, there would have to be some kind of representation that this was happening. So the first symbol that we're told of here is the sound. It's a sound. 
It's not even a wind. It's a sound of a wind, but a mighty rushing wind. It sounds like that. And if you're in an upper room with 120 people, it's very crowded. I imagine it's a little bit noisy. So this had to be a pretty loud sound. Maybe sounds like a train coming through the room. A mighty rushing wind. If you spoke Greek or Hebrew as they did then, this would not be a surprising symbol at all for you because in the Old Testament Hebrew and New Testament Greek, the same word was used for spirit and wind. <laughs> Ruach in the Old Testament, Penuma in the New. So they use the same. We have two different words, but they didn't. And so when they hear a mighty rushing wind, that's a great symbol to say this is the spirit. Same idea. Not that the Holy Spirit literally is a wind, but again, it's a symbol to represent Joel 2's being fulfilled right now. Now, the second symbol I don't understand as well. There's a part of it that's very clear. So it says that there were these tongues as a fire that distributed themselves among, upon everybody's heads. Some think that they're tongues of fire because if you just look at a flame like on a candle, it kind of looks like a tongue. Okay, maybe. It's also fitting because they're about to go out and use their tongues to speak in different tongues. That was the word used for languages. So again, it's a very fitting symbol. Why is it fire? I don't know. You come tell me after class. Although we do see in the Old Testament that fire is used to represent God's power. Uh, you see that in Deuteronomy, God is spoken of as a consuming fire. If God's presence, sure. I mean, certainly at the burning bush. That made it clear to Moses what's going on in this bush. It's burning and it's not consumed. Maybe it was even a picture of Yahweh, the God who has power, presence, but he's not consumed. I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. But there, those are the two symbols that appear to them, and they have a real significance. And so when that happens, you know, again, 120 people in an upper room. Sounds like a train. <laughs> You're looking over everybody's head and there's fire. So, I don't know, you'd be surprised. But the Spirit was giving them utterance. So the Holy Spirit's in them, they're compelled to speak, and so they rush out into the streets of Jerusalem. Now again, this is God's wise providence in sending the Spirit on this day because, of course, it's a pilgrimage festival. This means that Jews have come from all over the known world to Jerusalem. So when they rush out to the streets, it's not empty. There are Jewish people from all different countries. You'll hear languages from all different parts of the world being spoken, a sort of international hub, like being in some parts of maybe a New York City. All these languages are being spoken, and out they rush. I don't know that the symbol of fire was still clear on their head at that point, but out they rush, and they begin speaking. And we read in Acts 2 that they are speaking of the great mighty deeds of God, but the surprising thing is, just like there were tongues of fire on their head, they are now using different tongues that they don't know. I mean, they all, I imagine, mostly look like your typical Aramaic or Hebrew-speaking Jewish people there. They come out, and everyone is surprised because they're all hearing them speak in their own languages. I don't think that means that they were speaking their own language but God made it so the language changed by the time it got to their ears. I think they were just speaking, 120 of them, speaking various languages. And there you are in Jerusalem, and you hear amid the hubbub your native language, and go, who's talking in my language? And you go and you listen. That's what was happening that day. This uh, gets mocked. 
Some people, and there are always those skeptics who want to dismiss anything God does, and there were some of them even then, and they said, oh, they're just drunk. <laughs> you know, as your friend's like, they're speaking my language, Parthians, Medes, they're just drunk. Okay, whatever, it doesn't make sense, but you got to say something if you want to dismiss it. So Peter, provoked by that, stands up and gives his great sermon at Pentecost. And if you remember, in the course of that sermon, as he's explaining, no, they're not drunk, let me explain to you what's happening. Do you know what passage of Scripture he quotes? Joel chapter 2, that long-anticipated promise that the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh, and he says that's what's happening right now. In other words, we're now in the last days, and that's how Peter interprets afterward as the last days. We are now in the last days. Something magnificent happening today. This is a new epic. This is a new age, and God has poured out his Spirit on all flesh. Now, what's the consequence of Peter's sermon and the Spirit's work that day? Just a little evangelism meeting where 3,000 people come to Christ. <laughs> That's, that blows, I can't imagine. That blows my mind. You'd plant a bunch of our churches with just those 3,000 people coming to Christ on that one day. But remember, this is the day of the first fruits. So you might think 3,000 people, that's massive. It's just the first part of the harvest. And that's the point. It's big, but it's the first part of the harvest, just like Pentecost represents. Here come the 3,000, but it just initiates an age in which thousands and thousands and millions of people will be brought in, not only from here, but far away. And we also, just in passing, in Romans 8, the Holy, Holy Spirit himself is called a sort of first fruits because he produces in us this longing for that last day when we're renewed. So it's like we have the first fruits and we're just waiting for the full harvest. This is Romans 8. Paul says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So again, it couldn't be more fitting to receive the Holy Spirit on the day of the first fruits. So that's what happened. Now you know. That's Acts chapter 2. But that leads us into this practical question of if the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, thus inaugurating, initiating the age of the Spirit we live in now, what changed? What's different in the work of the Spirit among God's people today, among you, than, let's say, the Spirit's work among Abraham or Moses or David or all of Israel back then? That's the question we're confronted with. Now, I have to begin just by saying something changed. <laughs> Can we agree on this? Because okay. this is actually a difficult question. Because if you look at the Old Testament, what does the Holy Spirit do? He'll rush upon Samson to give him strength. He'll empower him or come upon David, empower him, give him wisdom to be the king or Solomon. The Holy Spirit empowers us today. So that's similar. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was the spirit of prophecy. He would reveal things to the prophets, and the Spirit, Jesus said, would lead the disciples to all truth, and He leads us to the truth. So He led them to the truth. He leads us to the truth. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would rush upon someone or would fill someone. Today, the Spirit can come upon us and can fill us. So that's similar. There are so many similarities between the Spirit's work in the Old and New Covenants that you might be tempted to think, the day of Pentecost is more just symbolic. It's more just like a formality. 
No, because then it wouldn't need to happen, okay? The fulfillment of Joel 2 means something. So let's just, before we even talk about it, agree something changed that makes this a great age to live in. Something's different. And as I think about this, the best I can do with it is I see at least a fourfold change in the Spirit's work from then to now. These are four advantages that you have because you just by accident were born today and not 3,000 years ago. (laughs) By accident on a human level, but not divinely. Good point. All right, here are the four. First, and I'll explain this one. There is a change in the Spirit's work in terms of its clarity. So let me give you a few numbers. The Holy Spirit, these are not perfect numbers because it's actually a little tough to calculate this. The Holy Spirit is mentioned approximately 100 times in the Old Testament. The Old Testament has 23,000 verses. So if you do the math, that leaves you with a mention of the Holy Spirit about every 230 verses, which is a good number of chapters. So Old Testament's big, the Spirit's mentioned a hundred times, but that's not a lot given the number of verses that you have. When you get to the New Testament, it's where we live, New Covenant, New Age, when you get here, 8,000 verses, and how many times is the Spirit referenced? Our best guess is about 350 times. (laughs) So you can see the ratios, and if you do the math, that's something like 23 times 23 verses, I mean. Mention every 23 verses. That's literally 10 times more mentions of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament than in the Old. If you lived before the time of Jesus, before the day of Pentecost, you would have a portion of the Old Testament, or if you lived toward the end, you might have more of it, have the whole Old Testament. But even if you had the whole Old Testament, if someone asked you who the Spirit was and what work He did among God's people you would know some stuff, but it'd be a little vague. It's kind of like B.B. Warfield, the old Princeton theologian. He, he said, we can think of the Old Testament like this. The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished, but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which wasn't in it before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what was in it, but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. I guarantee you, before the day of Pentecost, I would not be teaching a class like this, (laughs) or it'd be an abbreviated class. I would have much less to say about the Holy Spirit, because His work among us has a greater clarity today. He's revealed so much more about what he does. So I guess you could say that this first point is not so much a change in the Spirit's work as it is a change in our awareness of the Spirit's work, which is no small insignificant thing. The Spirit has revealed things about himself to us with so much more clarity now because he wants you to be so much more aware of his work and his presence today. So that is one advantage you have. You would beat Abraham, in Bible trivia night, you just beat him. Think of how little revelation he had. Even if, I know, God was speaking right to him and you envy that, but do you know how much more revelation you have? He didn't even get to read the end of his own story, (laughs) and you get to read that. So there is a clarity that is greater after Pentecost. 
Okay, but now let's consider some that aren't just our awareness, but real changes in the Spirit's work. Here's one of them. So this would be our second point, and maybe the main point. There is a change in the degree of the Spirit's work before and after Pentecost. Like I said before, much of what the Spirit did before Pentecost, He still does today, but He doesn't he didn't do it as much then as he does it now. And if you want me to make this really clear to you, the easiest way to do it is just to go to the Gospels and read about the disciples while they were with Jesus during his earthly life, but before Pentecost. <laughs> because when you read the story of these 12 disciples, these 12 men, you certainly can see that the Spirit was working in them. You remember that Jesus at his baptism, the Spirit descended on him to equip him for ministry. And we have to believe the Spirit then was also with these disciples because they were doing things Jesus was doing. The disciples were casting out demons. And Jesus made it very clear in his conflict with the religious leaders that he was casting out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. So certainly the disciples had the Holy Spirit working through them to cast out demons or they couldn't do it. Probably were to understand the Spirit at work in them when they healed the Spirit at work in them as they preach the gospel, even the Spirit revealing truth to them, because you remember when Peter gave his great confession, he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' reply to him was, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. It's not flesh and blood. He says, my Father revealed this, but the Father, when He reveals things to us, does so through His Spirit. And probably that's to be understood there. Not flesh and blood, but what else is there? There's Spirit. So the Spirit revealed that to Peter. So the Spirit was at work. This is pre-Pentecost. But would you say that the Spirit's work to empower and enlighten the disciples while they were with Jesus was to the same degree as after Pentecost? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> if you look at what the disciples are arguing about before Pentecost, it's quite embarrassing. And it's not that they were perfect men afterward either. But there is such a marked change from before and after Pentecost in degree. Not in the nature of what the Spirit's doing, but in degree. Yes, Peter can say, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then right afterwards say, you'll never die. <laughs> I'll cut their ears off. So he didn't understand the purpose of the Messiah yet. But look at Peter preaching at Pentecost, literally the day of. Now he understands. And all of his sermons, all of his preaching, afterward, he's right on the money. He understands why the Messiah came. He had to die, the significance of that. And he still has to learn, but again, the Spirit's teaching him progressively, goes to Cornelius, realize the gospel's for Gentiles too, but there's just such a change of degree in the Spirit's work before and after. The same could apply when we think about even the miracles. You remember the disciples during Jesus' day, there was one time they're trying to cast out a demon, and it wasn't working. <laughs> but you don't see that after Pentecost. Maybe it happened. But after Pentecost, there's just such a mighty power at work through them. Jesus had told the disciples, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works I do, and greater works than these he'll do, because I'm going to the Father. He's going to send the Spirit. So this is what we read at the end of Acts 2, when that concludes. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now you might say, 
I'm not doing many wonders and signs. Yeah, you are. Have you seen any hearts changed from implacable, insensitive to God, to in love with God? Now, compared to that, you know, you can go take Pharaoh's magicians. They can make up all kinds of fancy stuff. You can turn a stuff into snakes. Great. That's nothing. Compared to taking a human heart and giving it a 180-degree turn from hostile to God and others to loving God and serving others. There's not a politician in the world that can do that. They wish they could. Can't be done. There's no magic on earth that can do that. Not even Disneyland can make that happen with all of its motivational talk. It's only the Holy Spirit's work. And if you've been used of God at any part in the process in leading someone to Christ, the Holy Spirit's doing that through you today. So that is an advantage that you have. Yes, it happened in the Old Testament, but it was different even then. It was come and see, come to Israel and see, but now you have been sent out to go share the gospel with everyone and see the power of the Holy Spirit changing people. So there's a change in degree. Third change briefly here. There has been a change in the breadth, B-R-E-A-D-T-H, breadth of the Spirit's work today. Now, again, because the Old Testament wasn't clear on this, we have to reason logically and say, certainly, any true saint in the Old Testament was regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Does the Old Testament say that? It does not. But reasoning based on what we know of the Spirit with our advantage of fuller revelation, we know that no one's going to believe in Yahweh and his Messiah without a changed heart. So the Spirit was working in God's people. Even that being said, though, when you read about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, one striking thing is that he's usually only working among the great people. He's there with Samson. He slays the, the jawbone of a donkey. He's there upon Saul, and then after Saul's rejected, he's there upon David, helping him fight the enemies of God. That's where you see the Holy Spirit. All the great prophets, the mouthpieces of Yahweh, they have the Spirit. But Moses has the Spirit. But typically speaking, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is at work in the great, in the prominent, in the people everyone's looking at, the prophets, the priests, the kings. This changes on the day of Pentecost. And that's good, because none of us are kings. You know. But remember the promise of Joel 2, on that day, what's going to be different? I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. All flesh. Lastly, the spirit works today with much greater permanence, at least evident permanence, so much so that Ephesians 1.13 speaks of the Holy Spirit as our seal. That you would put on a letter, wax seal, so nobody can open it before it gets to its recipient. That's the Holy Spirit in your life as a believer today. He has sealed you. He is the guarantee of your salvation. When you have the Spirit, remember David's prayer, don't take your spirit from me. That can never happen to you. If you believed in Christ, you have the Spirit. He cannot be taken away. You can quench Him. You can grieve Him. You cannot lose Him. And that is so clear to us now in a way it just wasn't in the past. So His permanence there. Now time forbids me from saying anything more, but I hope you see some of the advantages that you have. The point here is, look, don't romanticize the past. We love the Old Testament. Read it. Rejoice in it. 
Be glad you live today. You live in the day of the Spirit, the age of the Spirit, the last days. Jesus could say to you, with your life, you might think it a boring life. Whatever. Jesus would say to you nonetheless, blessed are you. Blessed are your eyes. Do you know what your eyes see? So much more than any of God's people saw before Pentecost happened. All the Spirit's inspired for you in the New Testament. And all the Spirit's work in your heart to help you grasp His truth week by week. Blessed are your eyes. Blessed are your hands. The mighty works done by your hands. Not to fight physical enemies, but to topple strongholds. To speak truth to each other. To speak truth. To speak the gospel to the lost. For it to have any impact whatsoever on people's lives. Has that ever happened? Blessed are your hands. Because of the power of the Holy Spirit promised to be at work in you. And you might say, I can't. No, not me. That's not me. You know, I'm just a child. And in those last days, I will pour out my spirit on your sons and your daughters. Oh, not me. I'm, I'm old. I'm too old to be useful. And your old men will dream dreams. <laughs> well, I'm too young. Your young men will see visions. <laughs> so I'm not important. I'm not a preacher. I'm not a pastor. It's not my job. Even on your male and your female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. You have the Holy Spirit in these days. And our goal in this class, and even just from this one lesson, is that we would start living like that's true and not pretending that Pentecost was merely symbolic. But Pentecost has ushered in an age of the Spirit in which you live. You have around you a mass of advantages. It's merely a matter of making use of them in your daily life to see the enlightenment and the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the next classes that follow, you'll see all of those works of the Spirit more clearly. But I hope from this class you're convinced that the Spirit really is at work here.